of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, February the 28th, 2019. This is episode 2391 of the Survival Podcast. A couple things of note today. One, it's the last day of the month. Two, that means there's two months of 2019 are gone. Tick tock, tick tock. The clock takes for us all. Are you working on your freedom and independence and personal liberty? Either you are or life is taking it away from you. That's, that's what we try to remind you of every time we turn a time milestone because time marches on whether you're prepared for that to happen or not. As I always say, folks, you should be making the most of your dash. Next up, the other thing about today is since this is a Thursday, it's a listener call show. This is where you call the Think Line, 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. This is not radio. It's not live. It's Memorex. You know, I just told a guest that recently uh, that I had on the show a few weeks ago. I was like, you know, it's not. Yeah, basically, I give my guests a pre-show briefing. One of the things I basically point out is, you know, we're recording the show. It's not live. A lot of the people that have been on, you know, maybe they get on the radio at times. And whenever you're on radio interviews, it's really nerve-wracking because you have bumper music coming up on you. You only get so much time. If you say something stupid, it's gone out there. So I try to, put, try to put the guests at ease, and the way I usually explain that is I'll say, it's not live, it's Memorex. I had this guest go, I don't, I don't understand. And it was one of my guests that was like, you know, like 27 or something like that, and didn't even know what Memorex was. For those of you who are going, well, I don't know what Memorex is either. It has nothing to do with preparedness, but it is something that's funny with generation gaps of not that many years. Memorex was a, a brand of audio tape. They're probably still around. I, I think some people still do use audio cassette tapes. Uh, but back back in like the 70s and 80s, guys, you had cassette tape players. And like Napster in 1985 was you listened to your favorite radio station and you had your recorder with your tape set play and record so it would record, but you had the pause button. And you had to like really pay attention to when that that song started, you had to recognize those first couple notes, and you'd miss a little tiny, but it'd be all right. You'd undo the pause, and then you could make tapes, and you could steal all the music you wanted, like Napster, off the radio. That's and then the DJ, you wait for the song all night long, right? And finally, the song comes on, and it's like the last thirty seconds of the song. It's trailing off, and then all of a sudden, the DJ is like, "That was, you know, Rat with," and you're like, "No, yeah, right." So anyway. The like top of the line brand of tape was a tape called Memrex, and some of you guys remember this. And they they had this advertising campaign that basically said the quality of Memrex was so good you wouldn't be able to tell whether it was live or if it had been recorded. So it's just a little antidote there I throw out for some humor on a Thursday. Uh, but the show is not live; it is Memrex. That means if you pick up the phone now and call eight six sixty five, think eight six 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 five. Wow! It's going to be a fun day, guys. 866-65-THINK. If you call that right now, uh, you will not have me answer the phone and take your call or get in touch with a screen. You get a machine and you leave me a message and through the magic of the interwebs, it will come to my mailbox and I will try to get you on the air. This week, you guys did so good that I would say if you called this week and you called the Think Line, not SpeakPipe, one call from SpeakPipe's on, I had such a good... Um, experience, I guess is the way to put it, this week with your calls, did almost everybody made it. 
Everybody almost made it on air that called in the last week to the Think Line. So I didn't really dig into the speak pipe box much. We'll start in the speak pipe box next week. It's a little hint there. Um, but here's what we got today. A question on grass-fed beef and really more on grass-finished beef. Like, what's the big deal? I'll try to answer that as best I can. Staying safe when you're reloading shotgun shells. I'll tell you why it's probably not as big a deal as people think. More on amending soils. We just did a whole episode on soils, and yet this call came in after it. So I'll say a few things, but I'm pretty much going to refer the caller back to that episode. But we'll talk just a little bit about when basically what you're starting with is pure compost, where you might want to do something a little differently there. Uh, increasing the size of largemouth bass in a pond. And I think this will be an interesting, I, you know, the interesting one to look at because this could apply to other, if you ever end up with the, the, the privilege of owning a pond, it's just an awesome thing. And I mean like a big pond, you know, five acres in this case. Um, it could apply to any game fish or any species of fish that you wanted to increase the size of or control the population of. And it's a good lesson in biology as well. Of course, you want to know how to put a pond in your backyard. Uh, and you don't have the ability to put like a five acre pond. Remember, we got the workshop coming up. Uh, in April, but sign-ups are going to start Saturday this week for the Pond Building Workshop, so make sure you have it on your calendar if you want to come to that. Uh, night sights and lasers for carry guns. Getting ducks of different groups to flock together. I'm not completely sure I understand this question, but I'll do my best with it. Uh, dealing with a late-season hard freeze. We're about to do that in North Texas. I'll tell you why there's some things you can do, but in some other ways, you're kind of screwed in some situations. And how much land do you need to not see or hear or even smell your neighbors? I believe is what the caller, how he phrased it. But we'll we'll talk about that and how it's a great big. It depends. But we'll talk about how to how to get what you're looking for there, with the best, let's say, bang for the buck or the easiest path to that desire of kind of being Davy Crockett. What does that have to do with Davy Crockett? I'll tell you about it. Well, when we get to the final segment of today's show, which will be that one. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and dive straight on into it today, and we'll take our first call on grass-finished beef. Hi, this is Thesia of Northeastern Oklahoma, and I want you to help me to understand the reason for grass-finished beef. I definitely understand why we don't want CAFO beef uh, for all the reasons beyond that, but if the grass, if the beef is grass-fed, Before slaughter is non-GMO, does it make a difference? Thank you. Bye. Okay, so I, I think I understand this question. I, I, what I'm getting out of this question is, does it really matter if this this cow that is you know that I'm going to make steaks out of eats corn? That's that's really what I'm hearing here. And if it's not, I, I'm hoping I'll still end up answering the question. I'm hoping everybody will gain something from this discussion about understanding labels. And what it means and what it doesn't mean and cows and what cows eat and should eat and, and how cows are treated. Let's start off with the first thing. It is most likely accurate to say that the majority of beef in the country, by somebody's definition, somewhere could accurately be called grass-fed beef. It's not what the label's supposed to mean, but people are big, big cheaters with that label, and it can mean a lot of different things when you just say grass-fed beef. And the reason is that people who raise cows generally don't spend money to buy food for them when they don't need to because there's a field over there with grass the cow will happily eat. 
And what most people that raise cows do, and one of the things you need to understand is a lot of the cattle that come from CAFOs, even though they come from these great big commercial operations, that doesn't mean that cow was necessarily raised on a great big commercial farm. Plenty of people, you know, raise 10 head of beef, uh, you know, a cycle. And then they sell it to, um, like, you know, sale barn, sale house, whatever, and it ends up at a CAFO. And what the CAFOs then do is they stuff the cows with corn and they add fat to them as quickly as possible for as cheap as possible so that they get a greater yield. And then just to be completely honest, because I know there's people that are purists here with the whole grass-fed, grass-finished thing, grass or corn-finished beef does taste good. It absolutely does taste good because it has a lot of fat. So that's that's the path that the average piece of steak that you would buy in a grocery store that came through a CAFO takes. I think what Theseus is asking is, well, let's say I'm raising my own cattle and I want to finish them uh, with some sort of a grain product, maybe corn uh, or other things to kind of fatten the calf at the end, right? And is that really a big deal? That's one way I'm getting this question. And my my response to that is probably not. I think that cattle that are fed for a long period of time, they can have gut irritation and things like that because cows are ruminants. They're supposed to eat grass. Uh, a lot of people in the cattle industry, in the mainstream cattle industry, point out that corn is a grass. Yeah, the corn plant is a grass, but you're feeding it the, 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 the kernel, which is a seed. Uh, and it's, and it's, it's certainly if cattle found a, a wild-growing field of maize, they would eat it, but they would eat a lot of other things, too. It would not be a primary source of their diet. But used as a finisher, if it was, you know, especially if it's a non-GMO, you know, organic corn, you're feeding a cow. It's just expensive feed to feed a cow. It kind of takes away that, that cheapness uh, of the finishing. I, I don't really think it can cause that much harm because, you know, you're talking about a few weeks or even less sometimes. It's amazing how much fat they can put on if you get all the things timed right. What grass-finished grass is supposed to mean, it, it, I think some people could take that to be like, well, then the, the cow could have been fed anything, and then it's finished on grass. It, it, I guess that could big cheaters on labels could be the case, but almost nobody would do that. Like only what grass finished meant is this is a grass fed cow that was taken from the time it was a baby and when it got off mama's milk all the way up until it went to graduation day and got a bolt in its head, it ate grass. And I would say that when people like get really picky and say, well, if it ate any hay, hay is grass. Okay. Um, I, I think that, you know, there's nothing wrong with a cow eating hay. Um, so, that's kind of where they're coming from with that. Now, here's the, the point of that. It is a better quality fat. It is better for us. And some people think it tastes better, and some people think it tastes worse. And the reality is, depending on the management practices and the grass, the cattle breed, all of these things together, it can taste better or it can taste worse. But this is a fully natural product when we're talking about a cow that ate grass its entire life. And if it ate anything else, it ate it as pieces and parts out of a natural ecosystem, you know. Maybe it found some corn, you know, it, what have you. It, but it, it, wasn't, it wasn't just sat there and stuffed with corn. Now, how bad is it when we do stuff an animal with corn? I will tell you that even the king of eco-farming, Joel Salatin himself, I, I, I've heard him say, when you're finishing hogs, now this isn't beef, but when you're finishing pigs, if they're underweight, just stuff them with corn. Put fat on them. 
don't take a loss on the animal. Fatten them up. If Joel Salatin will do something, and where he's getting his corn and what kind of corn he's using, I don't know. But if Joel Salatin will do that, I don't think it can be that bad. It can be maybe not as good. But that's kind of where everything comes from. So you have grass-fed, which means the animal ate grass at some point in its life, and under the label, a specific ratio, like there's, if you sell it as grass-fed, It doesn't mean it couldn't have had any corn, but some portion of its diet all the way up to the end had to include some level of grass. And I believe they allow hay in that. Grass finished means this animal was raised on pasture or hayed, and that's it. That's what it ate. That's all that it ate as a mainstay of its diet. And that's what you're, you know, you're heading toward there. The reality is that you can fatten cattle beautifully on grass. I mean beautifully. And I don't think... A, a corn-finished cow can compete with a properly managed, fed, and finished grass-fed cow. But it takes longer. It takes longer. Um, generally, most of the beef that's slaughtered in this country is slaughtered at about 18 months of age. And you're looking to... to now, again, I'm not talking about is it is it big enough to make it worth slaughtering. No, I'm talking about you're wanting to grow a steak... Cow that grows steaks that is going to be aged in a beautiful aging facility at a New York City steakhouse. That somebody's going to go pay $150 for that steak and they're going to be like, that's the best steak I ever ate. You, you may be raising cows more into like two and a half years on grass to get there. So it's a premium product. The other side of it is if you're, if you're raising your own beef, it's less expensive if you have the right pasture and everything, but you're also taking care of the animal longer. So that's the best I can do with this. Maybe we'll have Darby Simpson chime in on this a little bit since he knows a lot more about it than I do. Um, but there, there you go. And what I've noticed when you get true grass-fed and finished beef from someone that's you know running that 18-month cycle – um, that's those steaks are never as big as commercial beef. They're never as big because that animal is going to take longer to really become what it can become as a premium steak product if you're doing it all on grass. My experience, I could be wrong. I reserve the right to be wrong. Next, we have a reloading question. Hi, Jack. This is Andrew from Ohio. Just wondering if you could give us some practical tips on reloading shot shells. I'm looking through some reloading manuals and they give some dire warnings, and they're very formulaic, and don't do this or you'll blow up. But then I read through forums on the Internet. I, I know your advice about everyone on the Internet is basically a drunk guy who's just running his mouth, but they seem like they're pretty fast and loose when it comes to what they can get away with. Uh just wondered if you could give some practical advice on what can I do, what can I try, and how do I get started. Um, in my case, I'm looking at uh, number four buck for some predator hunting, and I'm just not finding much locally. And shipping, it, it just hurts to see the price double when I go to ship. So if you could give me some advice on how to get started, I would appreciate it. Thanks, Jack. Love the show. So this is one of those calls where I channel my inner Charlie Papazian, who has nothing to do with guns as far as I know. Old Charlie is the author of the new Complete Joy of Home Brewing and the original Complete Joy of Home Brewing. And it's in his book, many times he said, and of course, you know, he wrote the original back in the 1970s, and people were not familiar with brewing beer. 
and people would get worried and uptight and stuff. He'd say, it's going to be okay, relax, don't worry, and have a homebrew. And that's kind of where I am with this. I don't want to say it's impossible to screw this up, but it is difficult to screw this up. If you use the equipment that you're going to buy to do the reloading uh, the way that it's designed to be used. Now, if, since you're talking about number four buck for predator hunting here, and you're probably not going to be uh, reloading huge high volumes, and, and even if you were eventually, I recommend an entry-level product for everybody with shot shells is the Lee Load All, and you can get that in 20 and 12 gauge. And it will come with, like, Unlike most shot shell reloading equipment that costs a lot more money, oh, well, you have a charging bar, and then you need these things called bushings, which is what's going to keep you out of trouble. Oh, well, there are X dollars for this bushing and X dollars for that bushing and X dollars for this bushing, and they'll be made out of metal, and they'll be you know really nice and fancy looking and expensive. Well, it's just a fixed cavity. That's all a bushing is. In other words, it's a certain amount of space, and only a certain amount of shit will fit in that space, so if we fill it up and then drop it into a shell, we know how much went in. Well, what Lee did with the load all is they pretty much came up with every shot and, and powder bushing you could ever possibly use for either 12 or 20 gauge, made them out of molded plastic, which is just fine because you're not putting pressure on it or anything, and just included it in this really great entry-level product. So that's what I'm going to recommend now. It confuses me a little bit when you say they're paying fast and loose in these forums and stuff. Okay, um, if you're talking about people that basically have you know fabricating their own dipper, knocking out primers with a screwdriver, pushing them in with something, and uh, not using proper reloading equipment here, my advice is run away, run far away, run far, far away. Just don't even bother. There's no reason. When you look, and I'll put a link to the Lee Load All in the show notes today, when you look at the cost of this thing, you'll, if you're going to reload shells, there is no reason to go out and half-ass it. Um, you'll spend more in components than you will on the loader just for you know the first 10 boxes, and it'll pay for itself by the time you do that. So the way that'll work then is you'll look at a manual that'll come with this tool, and it'll say if you want to load number 4 buck into a 2 and 3 quarter inch shell, and you want you know this much ounces or you know you know 1.4 ounces or whatever of shot use this bushing and because your buckshot is basically always number 4 is always the same it's standard size when you put that bushing in there and you have your 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 shot on top it falls down into there when you push the charge bar over and it fills that 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 one little area to capacity and you shove it back over and drop it into your shells it's going to be the same amount of shot every time because with a fixed cavity, we can figure that out. If you're using published load data, you're not going to overload it. Uh, and with something like number four buck, you try to overload it, it's not going to, shell's not going to close. Um, and the same with the powder. You're going to get a, a, an amount of powder that's necessary. You're going to get a load, and it's going to take. And, and with shotgun shells, we still use outdated nomenclature, drowns equivalent. When you look at a shotgun shell box that says, you know, drams equivalent X. They're going back to black powder, and we used to measure black powder with in drams in, with a scoop, another fixed cavity. And when we went to smokeless powder, which is what everything's loaded with today, well, 99.9% .9 of everything's loaded with today. Um, with when we go to you know load details on rifle cartridges, we switch to grains because we use a lot less. It's a lot more of a very specific. 
uh, accurate amount of powder when we go to grains. It works better. We don't want to be using drams of smokeless powder. We will blow some shit up good if we do that. But what they did is they did the calculation, and for one reason or another, we decided to stick with it, and we've stayed with this old formula, and this much powder is equivalent in power to this dram uh, measurement from the old days of shotgun shells. It all sounds more complicated than it is. Get a Lee Lodol, follow the instructions that come with the manual, always use published load data and any reloading, and you'll be fine. Let me say something about, you know, you're reading these manuals, and if you do it wrong, you're going to blow yourself up or whatever. When a person publishes a reloading manual or reloading manuals that go along with reloading kits or something, they are opening themselves up to lawsuit city for everything. You can literally have somebody attempt to sue you because they got the gunpowder out, pulled a Bic lighter out of their pocket, shook it up, lit the lighter and tried to look inside and smell it at the same time and blew their face off. They may not win, but they might. I mean, that's how litigious our society has become. So whenever anybody puts something down on paper that you're going to use, they always do two things. Number one, they do cover their ass out the, out the wazoo. They put warning this, warning that, warning this, warning that. And if you come in and say you blew yourself up because of them, their lawyer is going to go on page 37. It says warning, blah, 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 blah. Did you do that exactly as instructed? Are you sure you did it exactly as instructed? Did you read the entire manual the way it said in the beginning before you began the reload? I mean, they're going to do everything they can to protect their client. And they write that with that in mind. So they're going to be overly cautious. Some Yahoo on a forum is not even thinking about getting sued and probably can't be. So they just blurt out whatever they're thinking. And it's like, it is a drunk in the bar thing. What do I say about the drunk in the bar thing? The drunk in the bar may not be wrong. I've met plenty of drunk guys in bars with a loud mouth that were absolutely right in what they were saying. But I'm not going to base my life on what they say until I verify it. So use published load data get proper reloading equipment, and you won't have a problem with this at all. Let's go ahead and take another one, this one on amending soil. Hey, Jack. Aaron from Upstate New York here. Question. I am building four 4x8 four raised garden beds. What amendment, amendments can I put into the soil initially to promote growth? The soil I'm using started life as horse manure and pine shavings about two years ago and was turned accordingly. Thank you. Have a great day. Well, as I said, I, I just last week did a show that was 100% dedicated to the topic of building soil and soil fertility. So I'll put a link in the show notes and refer you back to that episode. It was the episode from Tuesday last week, not Tuesday this week. Um, so I don't want to completely kind of try to rehash something I spent over an hour doing just a couple weeks ago, but... I would tell you that, first of all, you're in such good shape. You have horse manure and pine shaving compost. Um, you're going to tend a little bit to the acidic side there, and that's great. I mean, most soil actually is too alkaline. Um, you're, you know, with horse manure, you're going to have a lot of nutrient. Basically, you have a, a grass primarily based compost, so it's a kind of a woody compost, uh, good nitrogen content. The only thing you may have issue with is sometimes when you try to, you're basically growing in pure compost which sounds great but sometimes when you do it you, you end up with some, some problems with soil structure 
and certain plants grow really good and other plants don't grow quite as good. I've done it. It usually works just fine. But what you may want to do is get a hold of just some cheap, plain Jane topsoil and go at about 50-50 there so that you get some, some structure and some crumble into that um, compost. And you'll also get some mineral from that. And then when you listen to the episode from a week and a half ago, um, I'll talk about things like lava sand and stuff like that that can ad additionally help you with some of the minerals and micronutrients. And so that would be something else. And then look at my entire fertility program, which is made up of a product called Fish Newer, which is a, a clay-based uh, fertilizer from uh, fish. It will help with microorganisms. Uh, definitely, you know, I don't know that you need that. Not, you know, with, with where, where, you're, where you got this, you may not need much fertility at all. I would definitely, you know, toss down a bit of Dr. Earth Premium Gold 444 fertilizer uh, there and, and, and do that because I just think that it's, it's too, it's, it, it's just too, it does so much for so little. You got to throw some of that down. You know, and through the year, then you do things like, you know, either uh, compost teas you make yourself or a product like uh, Garrett Juice Plus, uh, those things. And, again, all this stuff's in my fertility. Watch for any type of, of macro or micronutrient deficiencies. Your biggest deficiencies always, always, always outside of your NPK, which you should have no issues with at all here. With the compost of manure as, as your primary, I mean, you should have, you know, it's not going to be a huge, um, not, it's probably going to be an NPK of around 1-1-1. But compare 1-1-1 in the totality or even at a 50% cut with topsoil, um, to something like 444 from a fertilizer that you put a little bit on. And you realize it's massive. It doesn't need much. Um, but the one thing that I would make sure that I got into this and right away is a good fungal inoculant. Now, one of the reasons I recommend the Dr. Earth product is because it has beneficial uh, fungus and uh, beneficial colonizing bacterium. So it's going to give you some of that, but the endomycorrhizal fungi product that I recommend is really, really valuable. And it's all available under the tag Fertility at the Survival Podcast, and I will put a link in the show notes along with a link to the episode that we just did on this subject. But the truth is, you could probably throw this stuff in the box, throw some mulch on top of it so it doesn't dry out, plant into it, and be fine. I don't know that you need to do much amending here. Uh, you, again, you could probably cut it with anywhere between 25% and 50% topsoil and just plant into it and, and be good to go. Do not cut it with cushion sand or play sand. It's just not, it's just not a good idea. Don't do that. There's no reason for it uh, at all, even a little bit. I would not I recommend that to anybody, cutting any type of a garden soil product with, with plain Jane, basically beach type sand. If you that's what your native soil is, then you got to deal with it. But I wouldn't bring it to the party if it wasn't already there. With that, let's go ahead and take another one. This one on largemouth bass in a pond, a really nice pond that makes me jealous of five acres. Hey, Jack, I was calling to see if you could help me figure out how to bring back size to my largemouth, largemouth bass in my pond. Details are I have a 5.8 acre pond. It's about 15 feet in the middle. It's got a lot of structure around it, surrounded by trees, um, a lot of trees down in the pond for structure. Uh, it's 
got a lot of fish, a lot of bass, a lot of crappie, a lot of bluegill. Um, there's some catfish in it. The problem is, is every bass I pull out these days is the same size, and they're all torpedo-shaped. I'd like to get back to where we were pulling citation-sized bass out of here. What's the best way to go about taking out pounds and pounds and pounds of fish uh, so that the bass have an opportunity to grow back to where they they used to be in this pond? Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye. So just straight out of the gate, I am not a fisheries biologist here, so I'm going to do my best to help with this using um, my life experience and things that I've been involved with, and I've seen this type of thing before, and uh, I actually have had a lot of conversations about this with folks over the years, uh, both people that sell fish for stocking and with biologists that work for the state of Texas and the state of Pennsylvania. First thing I want to tell you is, in my experience, just as a fisherman, this problem may not be as bad as it looks. On the surface, it looks like all the big bass are gone and all the little bass that are undernourished are everywhere and they're stunted. And there's probably some truth to that, but the reality is young bass are like young teenage boys with a video game console. They're stupid. And once that population gets really high, a lot of times you don't catch the bigger fish simply because the young stupid ones hit everything and anything that they see. Oh, it's shiny. Bam. And there, there, there's another one. And they, they do. They end up looking all the same. So we do want to start taking fish out of this pond. And the good news is this is completely a private pond, and you're doing the name of game management in all but maybe the worst states on the planet. And those states just don't need to know what you're doing. Uh, we can kill them, even though they're not legal probably you know, for, for calling fish. The good news is that even an 8-inch bass gets a decent fillet. So uh, my first order of business here would be to start removing fish. And you can try trapping them or cast netting or anything like that, but I have thrown a lot of cast nets into a lot of water that have a lot of bass in it. And I have very seldom ever ended up with a bass in a, in a cast net. I have run a lot of feeding tra you know, traps for perch and stuff like that. I have never, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, I have never caught a largemouth bass in a trap. Um, but if there are as many of them as you say there are, um, just start yanking them out of there and, you know, send them to fillet school and make fish tacos. Uh, the other thing is problem solution, right? So you might put an advertisement out on a place like Craigslist and say, bass to stock your pond with, come catch your own. Right and sell people like you know you can you can take twenty fish for twenty dollars or something. It's cheaper than buying them off a stocking truck, and you know they get to come do all the works. So that's another way you could do this. You could have a bunch of friends over, and we're going to have clean out the largemouth bass day, and we're going to have a fish fry. And uh, you know anything that does violate anything in your state's laws, make sure you keep between you and the fence posts and think about how you do anything publicly there. But I would start removing as many of these small bass as possible. I wouldn't even begin to worry in like let's say the first year of management about even the possibility of taking too many out. If you had a half acre pond, I might worry about that. You had a five acre pond, that there is so much habitat there and so much varied spaces and places for those fish to go um again i think probably you do have an overpopulation of young fish but you know you got your lunkers that have been caught 75 times because you do all catch and release and they've seen that that gets it or that jigging pig a bunch of times and they're like well 
Yeah, let's let Junior grab onto that and see what happens to him, right? Oh, there he goes. Yeah, he'll learn someday. I mean, there is some of that. Fish do become somewhat line and hook shy over time. And plus, like I said, you got these young bass that are hungry running around like piranhas, and they're eating a lot of the forage that's small, and, and then your bigger fish can eat the larger forage fish that the little bass can't. Um, in ponds like this, generally your bass feed mostly on small bluegills and minnows, your small bass, and then whatever else they can fit in that mouth and swallow and get down. But they generally limit the size of the of the bluegills, sunfish, perch, whatever you want to call them that they eat because, you know, as you know, as a kid, you go catch tons of those things and you end up with lots of holes in your hands because they have those spiny back fins. So they'll only go up to a certain size of taking those fish in. So kind of looking at the, the food chain there, the food web, what we now need to do is increase the forage for the fish, especially the larger bass, And you didn't tell me where you are, so I'm not sure that everything I'm going to say here is going to be doable, but it's what I would do if it was my pond and it was. The first thing I would want to introduce to this pond is golden shiners. It is a five-acre pond. You might pull off shad. You really might, but they need a lot of plankton, and they just, you know, chatter more of a big water fish. And, you know, we always think of shad as being pretty little, but, you know, even like gizzard shad and stuff, they can get really pretty big forage-sized fish to where a big bass can eat four or five of them. It's a big meal. Um, golden shiners get up over 13 inches. They're actually fun to catch online for kids, and they really can't be a problem if they overpopulate because everything, your catfish will eat them. The babies will be eaten by everything. Even bluegills will eat baby uh, golden shiners. They grow fast. Uh, they primarily feed on vegetation and, and aquatic insects and stuff like that. And if you, if you want to find out if they're in a body of water, find where bluegill hit. This has been my experience. It's weird. I don't know why this happens, but you know, where you can throw out a, a line with a piece of bread and the bluegill hit and just keep going a little further out and a little further out and a little further out. You get to a point where the bluegills don't really go out there. And right at that edge of where the bluegills stop going out, there'll be big old golden shiners in there, you know, 8, 10, 12-inch shiners, and they'll take a number 10 hook and you can catch them. So if you can find a lake that has them, usually there's no limit on them or anything. They're not a game fish. You may be able to just go harvest them, or you have to buy them to stock them. Um, and once you get those established, that is, like, that is the number one thing done in the state of Florida, for instance, to increase the size of a bass population is to get golden shiners into there. Uh, they're also a fantastic cut bait for catfish, just as a side. So that would be one thing I want to do. The other thing, though, I want to do is I want to shore up the bottom of the food web. And there's probably a lot of native stuff in there already, but the, the thing that I would look to add to this pond to shore up the bottom of the food web and your, you know, your bluegills, your, your golden shiners, your minnows, everything else is shrimp. And I would look to a species called the Mississippi grass shrimp. Now, I don't know how far north this thing can go, but as long as there's mud in the bottom of the pond they can bury themselves in, they seem to overwinter in places even where lakes completely freeze over. Um, I found one supplier where you can get them in quantity off of, off of eBay. And he sells them by the thousand if you want to buy that many. And uh, I bought from them myself. It doesn't really work for me here with my little bitty ponds. In your pond it absolutely would work. And I would try to get these introduced to the pond to, to kind of shore up the panfish and the forage fish 
as having more nutritive value and having you know more food to work with. Now, I wouldn't even though they can handle cold, I would not buy these things now. I just checked. I found the seller. He's still selling them on eBay. I would wait. I would buy them in the in the summer when your vegetation is high, and I would stock them at a couple different parts of the pond at skinny water because. You know, even if you put a thousand in there, your bluegill and all are going to tear them up. They're going to need to get a breeding population established. But once they do, now you've got a whole new anchor point into your your food web in your pond. And those are kind of the places that I would start. Again, I just don't know how you're going to effectively uh, remove large amounts of largemouth bass with trapping. Um, there's another thing you can do though. Most people don't believe it, but largemouth bass absolutely will will train to feed. And what I'm talking about is like throwing fish food like you would throw for bluegills or catfish or whatever to pellet feed. And it, you could, they make purpose-built ones, but I've always found the easiest thing to do, because they're cheaper, is to just go get a good deer feeder and fill it up with fish pellets and build a simple deflector so that it only throws out of one side and set that up and throw feed into that pond at you know one or two or three locations and, and and watch your fish and throw very little in the beginning because you won't get a huge response at first but over time you'll get more and more of a feeding response to the point where when those pellets go in the water it'll look like there's dad gone piranha in there and what that'll do is it'll put another source of nutrient into your largemouth bass now it is an expense but It can help push the size of those average fish up, put more weight on them, and that makes it a little bit easier for you to cull. And then the last thing I would say is find out from your state. I don't like to invite the, the, the camel into the tent anymore than I have to. But a lot of states actually, you know, when you look at law enforcement and, 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 and things like that, the, the most reasonable people and the most helpful people in government are in fish and wildlife. And a lot of states, especially once you have a, a lake over you know, a couple of acres, will be happy to put you in touch with one of their fisheries biologists uh, that will give you at no cost a plan to help develop your, your body of water. Uh, and so that would be something to look at as well, to get more of a professional opinion and professional advice. That's best I can do on a podcast or as a segment. So hopefully that's helpful. Anybody that's dealt with this issue, please feel free to email me or call in or comment on the blog or what have you uh, so that we can help this guy out and others out in the same situation. Let's take another one. Uh, this one on guns. Hello, Jack. Roger in Central Kentucky, MSB member. Got a gun question for you. I have a Walther PPS uh, 9mm, and uh, it's a nice weapon, but uh, my old eyes are getting having a hard time seeing the sights in dim light. I'm considering two things, either buying a, uh, a rail-mounted laser light combo. Uh, this one is predicted made by LM Spartan. Uh, it's available at, gun, at uh, Bud's Gun Shop, $195. My other options are putting some night sights on there. Uh, the one I'm looking at is uh, True Glow TG13 Whiskey Alpha 2 Papa Charlie TFX Pro for the Walther PPS. It's a green tritium fiber optic with green outline. It's $106. And the third option I'm looking at is a, uh, it's made by Me Me Meproglite. M-E-P-R-O-L-I-G-H-T. 
It's a true dot night set for PPS fixed. Uh, it's available on Amazon. It's got good reviews. It's 7771. So my question is, uh, I'm just, this is my primary carry gun and I would just like to be able to be able to, uh, either use a laser or, uh, be able to see the sights in dim light or maybe I should do both. I'm not sure. Uh, let me know what you think is my best option and it doesn't have to be either of these models. Uh, it can be, you know, any, uh, laser, uh, attachment. I don't think they make a, a grip laser for this particular model or, um, a new set of sights or both. So let me know what you think. Thanks. Bye. So this is actually what I would advise you to do. And it's very probable that you will not be able to get this in the exact same handgun that you have, but I would look around local gun shops. Most gun shops that have indoor ranges, you have the ability to rent guns, and it's very inexpensive to do so. Um, and I would talk to the shop manager or owner and say, hey, is there anything I can rent to shoot that has night sights on it or that has a, you know something like a Crimson Trace laser or something like that, and, and, and go shoot with these uh, things so that you actually, instead of sitting back from a distance and saying, well, this will help, or, well, Jack Spierko says he likes this, then I'm going to get this, or Jack says he doesn't really like lasers, so I'm not going to get one, uh, because we all have different predispositions in our abilities and what works best for us. For instance, I know everybody's gone to this new modified freaking tactical handgun stance. I learned to shoot Weaver style and just, Long as I can hit paper plates at 75 yards with a 1911, you can take your new stance and shove it. And it's not that there's anything what you're doing with that stance is wrong. It's this works for me. It's proven for me, and I like it. And 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 I'm not. And I've I've tried the other thing. And it's not just that it's not as comfortable. It's just I don't shoot as well. And since I can shoot better than I need to, the way that I shoot, I'm going to keep shooting that way. If that makes sense. I don't personally like. Uh, the red dots, laser, not red dots, lasers on handguns. Um, and I, I, it probably has a lot to do with the way that I shoot. Uh, if I t I'm taking my time, yeah, I'm on the sights. At defensive ranges, I'm primarily an instinctive shooter anyway. And I know that you get drilled into your head over and over. You got to see the sights, you got to see the sights. But I've plumb taken sights off of guns and, and shot at reasonable defense ranges, you know, out to about even as far as 15 yards, and can hold that target in there. So I might not be the best person to answer this question. If you ask, let's say you ask somebody that's a really good instinctual archer that shoots you know, a bow with no sights, like would this sight or that sight be better for, for a bow? They're going to tell you, well, I don't think you need sights, right? And I'm not that far with it with, with a handgun, but I am a you know, to a de large degree. Uh, handguns are designed to be pointed and shot up to a certain range, and then we really need to rely on the sights. I know that completely bucks what every trainer teaches, but it doesn't buck the way most people actually shoot in the real world. So there is that. I like night sights better than I do lasers. They're not going to fail. right? They're not going to fail. They're basically the same thing you already had. They're just more visible. So I, I would prefer either one of those options. I can't speak to either one 
that you specifically mentioned because I haven't used either one. But I would be more toward that side of things as a first step. But I think that the best thing that anybody can do, when well, do I buy this gun or that gun? Is there a local shop where they rent pistols for ranges and you can go in and shoot them both? Because that is gonna that is gonna say more about what's right for you than my opinion or anybody else's opinion ever could. Because there is, I know people don't want to accept it, but there is something to the fact that different people shoot different ways. And what have you shot your whole life? And how have you shot your whole life? And yeah, you can retrain and relearn everything. And, and you know what? If you want to be some kind of you know. Bianchi cup shooter or something like that. Maybe it's worth it. Most of us just want to make sure if we ever have to use that weapon, whether we're shooting a deer with a .44 Magnum or we're shooting a person trying to kill us with a 9mm, that we put the rounds where they need to be. That's what we're looking to do. In that situation, what already works well for you, I think, is where to stick. So with that in mind, this is why I kind of lean toward the night sights for, for, for you is you've been shooting with sights your whole life. You haven't been shooting with a laser, you'd already have an opinion. So it most likely is the case that, the, that all that going to the night side is going to do is make the sights more visible to you. And I would say this, if you're in a situation where the night sights aren't sufficiently visible, you probably can't see the target enough to know that it's what you should be shooting at unless it's shooting at you. And then all things change when that happens. You're aiming at muscle flashes at that point. Um, you mentioned a light laser combo, though, so you have the light on the gun. I am not opposed to that, but I tend to carry a tactical light and a gun separately. I prefer that myself. And I want to say something here, going back to, you know, you guys know I've taught a lot about using airsoft for training. I think one of the best things in the world with Airsoft is that you can practice in the backyard, but you can also do things often that you can't do with a firearm unless you're blessed and you have a place to shoot. So, like, I lived in Arkansas. I could do anything I wanted within the bounds of my own personal brain and safety. Uh, but if I go to a range around here, I can't have them turn the lights off for me, pull out my tactical light, and use my light in one hand and my gun in the other. And you see people, you know, with their 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 gun hand over top of the wrist of their light hand and shooting like that. You know what? It works, but a lot of people can't shoot worth a shit that way. Can you? You won't know until you try. So I'll also say that whatever you set up, and this is why I'm moving more and more. I'm a traditionalist, guys. Okay? I'm, a tra I'm, I'm an older guy. I've been around a while. I was, I was taught how to shoot with a 1911 in a weaver stance when I was freaking eight years old. And that's why I'm stuck on that, because it's, 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 it's ingrained in me that way. And just nobody had a freaking handgun back in 1982 with a light on it or a laser on it. And it doesn't mean it's not better technology. There's a reason that it's been so well accepted and adopted. And what I like about the light on the gun is, and there's no reason for me not to, right? Because I have one on my ARs. So if it makes sense there, it probably makes sense on a handgun. I just, I'm big on a handgun is limited in what it can do anyway. It is for close range situations. It is for self-defense situations when you're carrying it. 
everything I put on it makes it bigger, makes it more likely to snag on something when I'm drawing it, makes it more likely to print when maybe I don't want it to, makes it more likely to be uncomfortable. If it's uncomfortable, maybe I don't carry it. Carry it. So to me, the, the, the big thing is if you switch your sights to, to night sights, it's going to be the same gun with just more visible sights. So take that, and I'm sorry I can't be more specific. Love to hear some of you guys that have a different opinion from me what you think about this particular need in this particular situation. And again, again, I'll admit it. I'm old. I've been doing this for most of my life. And, and, you know, I have a good friend of mine. We were just playing around with airsoft guns one day in the backyard. And he said, you, son, you sir, are old school. I said, yeah, man, I am. You know, you, he's like, you were trained before 1990. Yeah, yeah, I'm old. I'll, I'll admit it. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Derek from Tennessee. I have a question about ducks. I have a group of about 15 ducks, and then I got about 12 more juvenile birds. They've been together now for about a month or so, but they still maintain two separate flocks. Is there a way to encourage them to integrate into one flock to make caring for them a little easier? Thank you. Um, the answer is yes and no. And so I'm not really sure that I understand why that they wouldn't be easy to care for unless these are like 100% free-range ducks, which is not what I recommend. So all... I think that anybody that keeps ducks, especially when eggs are something you want from your birds, and they're not just birds that wander around the property to be pets that look cool on your pond or whatever, your ducks should be trained to go somewhere at night. All ducks go to bed is the command, and we march the ducks to bed. And um, with a few exceptions, their food exists where they go to bed at night, and we have some way to contain them. You know, now that I have a small flock, I have a 12 by 16 shed that was a chicken coop, and, and now it's a duck, duck coop. They go in there every night with the three little chickens, and uh, they stay in there. And that just means I have zero predator worry. Uh, when I had a lot more ducks, I just didn't want that many crammed into a house, and it would have been too much trouble every night. So um, I had a fenced area, uh, you know, of, uh, about the size of maybe two or three large living rooms put together, and they went in there. We had electro fence around it so that the, the foxes and whatever couldn't get them at night, and they all went there. So the care is egg picking up, feeding, and fresh water. Okay, so what they do when you let them out, assuming obviously you're letting them out or this wouldn't be an issue at all, um, it, it is irrelevant. And I'm going to talk about the flocking nature of these guys and generational here in a minute. Um, but, yeah, I mean, then, then the, the care is all the same. And if you don't have ponds, so you're giving them, let's say, kiddie pools or something like that, if you know you move them, you get, when you do that, you got to move those pools daily, or at least every other day, or they will just tear an area up. So if you're doing that, then as long then it, you know don't give them two different places they can go. You know, put you know one, two, three, however many kiddie pools you're going to use in a place, fill them up with water that day. And if you have a, a smaller flock like you do, you might be able to go two days, maybe just top them off, and then you dump that water and you move it to a totally new area. And then that way they all have to go there for, for water and bath time and play time and all that stuff. And they all have to go back to, to at night to a holding area. Now, if you're not putting them in a holding area, again, it's just not what I recommend, so I don't know how to solve your problem because they're not going to fully integrate. There is something with ducks. If they grow up together, they kind of congress together. And, you know, now all my birds are always together because I have ten. And they always hang out, and they all were in a brooder together, and that's just the way it is. If I decided I wanted 20 ducks, 
And instead of letting these ducks hatch their own, I took them in an incubator and hatched another 10 ducks and brought them up and did Duck Chronicles 5. And eventually when they're big enough, I put them out there. There's not going to be a lot of tension. Ducks don't tend to be real territorial, um, especially once the birds are grown. I have seen baby ducks attacked by uh, ducks within a flock that saw them as invaders. I have seen that happen, and it sucks. Um, but they would go, and they would all get along. But when they go out and about, you're just going to see, like, you can just go, like, okay, that's... And when I used to keep uh, a lot of ducks, people would say, well, how, you know, you don't have them banned or anything. How do you know? And I'm like, well, that group over there is a bunch of two-and-a-half-year-olds, and that group over there is a bunch of year-and-a-half-olds, and then that group over there, they're all about eight months. Well, how do you know that? Because they hang out. You know, because I can just look, and I can just look at them. I can tell a duck is an older duck, and I know my groups, and they kind of hang out. Was there some crossover? Yeah. They're not, you know, they're not completely isolationist. Oh, you're from that other group, you know, or you're a Metro 300, and I'm a Khaki Campbell. We're, I mean, you know, they're not duck racist or nothing like that. They just form social bonds. So those ducks have formed social bonds within that age bracket, and those social bonds are not going to break. And this is a good thing. It's why we can herd ducks. It's why we can herd ducks. It's why we can move them. It's why we can get them to do what we want them to do because of those social bonds. Where chickens have a lot looser of a social bond. And that's why when you start trying to push chickens somewhere, everybody goes their own way. And with ducks, when you first start moving ducks from one area to another, what you have to teach yourself is to stick with the majority and ignore the minority. Because if you just, if you're, like, I'm pushing, let's say, 20 ducks to a place and four of them peel off on me. As long as they're part of that social bond, if I keep moving the rest of them, when I turn around and look, those four will be hauling ass to get back with their friends. When I go to put them in the duck house at night now, sometimes they're in there, sometimes they don't want to go. And I'll just start moving the ten little birds toward the doorway and, you know, one or two will peel off and I just keep working the majority. And once three or four go in there, everybody goes in there. And then the, the, the ones that, that ran off and tried to hide, they come hauling out. Like, oh, I don't want to be alone. Um, if you have two different total social groups, you kind of got to get a majority of both going in a situation. So um, my biggest advice is have a common holding area. And then just, like, you don't have to worry about them like you're a parent or something. If, like, all the mallards go over here and all of the khaki camels go over there, that's okay. It's no big deal. So it shouldn't be a management issue. And even if you are... If you're not putting them in a holding area and you're just like, Jack, I don't want to do that. I don't want to spend the money. I don't have the time. It's not that important to me. Okay, then put their support infrastructure in one place. Put their food and their water in one place and don't give it to them in two places. They'll figure it out. It won't take long. Hunger is a strong motivator. Let's take another one. This on a coming deep freeze for North Texas. Hey, Zach from East Texas again. Uh, a couple of us in the TSP Texas group were talking about the upcoming freeze we're, we're in for here in Texas, most parts. Uh, a lot of people have their fruit trees already putting on blossoms and want to, you know, try to protect as many plants as possible. So start might get your thoughts on some of the best ways to protect your small trees and plants from a short freeze. Thanks for all you do. Have a good one. Well, uh, hate to put it this way, but on some level, and I'm right in this barrel with you, we're screwed. Uh, when it comes to fruit trees, I have got 
plum trees galore, and some of my peach trees completely blossomed out. I'm hoping like hell I have a beautiful apricot tree that I got good production on for the first time last year, and it has always been the tree that screws me over and, and flowers in like the second week of February. It has not flowered yet this year, and I'm like, don't, and I'm looking at it, and it's just starting to swell. I was like, don't flower, don't, just wait till Wednesday, just wait till Wednesday, and we'll have lots of apricots for beautiful apricot mead. Please wait. Um, We may or may not get totally screwed from the fruit tree standpoint on this with trees that have already flowered. Fruit trees and their blossoms actually can handle a pretty good freeze, especially if it's not long duration. Now, the bad news is it's going to be really cold for this time of year where we are. The forecasted low over like a four-day period, four days going into a true freeze, not a frost, The lowest night's 21 degrees. The the potential hope that we have, and depending on where you are, yours might be better or worse than me, um, is that it's not like 12 hours down in that low temperature. It's a few hours, and that one day it's about eight hours. So here's some encouragement. Don't get too excited, but here's some encouragement. Last night, the supposed overnight low for me was 31 degrees, just at freezing. Bullshit, because I went outside last night at about 9.30 at night, and it was 28 degrees. I took a walk around the property this morning, and none of my fruit trees dropped any blossoms. We have a lot of rain coming. This is the thing you guys in the east might get hit with this harder than me. When I've lost all my blossoms on a fruit tree is when freeze and rain get together, and the rain freezes on the flowers, and they die, and it drops off, and you get no fruit that year. So there's not a lot you can do here to, to save your fruit trees when you end up in this situation. They flowered. We had a relatively mild winter. A lot of them flowered a little earlier than they should have. And now we get this late-season bone-chilling freeze. And I'm like, 21 degrees, Jack, that's our high. I understand, but you live somewhere else and your seasonality is different. And you don't have your trees covered with flowers like I do, and Zach and all the friends in the, the, the Facebook group for Texas have right now. So I don't know what you can do. If you have one or two fruit trees, then you can go out to like Home Depot, Lowe's, whatever, and they have those covers, and they work. And you can get those and put them around your trees, and I would get them up before you need to. So like this weekend, Friday, Saturday, because you could actually build some residual warmth up with the sun that we're going to have, but we're not going to... This is what makes this worse. So Saturday and Sunday, it's supposed to be rainy and cloudy. And then it clears, and then that's when the cold hits us. So you're not going to have a lot of ground heat, and that's what helped, I think, last night. So, you know, temperatures got up in the 60s yesterday. The sun was not, not out all day, but it was out in the early part of the day. And by 4 o'clock, it, it went from the 60s down to the 40s. And when I left the house last night to drop my grandkids off with, to meet their mom, um, I left the house. It was 41 degrees. I wasn't gone 30 minutes. It was 36 degrees when I got home. So in a half hour, it was between about 4.30 and 5 o'clock, the temperature dropped 5 degrees. So we had a quick drop last night, but we did have the early morning residual heat buildup. We're not going to get that. So I don't know other than if you have a few trees and they're not that big, you can cover them. 
with your regular plants, you take your normal precautions. I have uh, three, three, four by four beds planted right now. There are frost tolerant, even freeze tolerant plants. Uh, broccoli, which is pretty much a honey badger when it comes to the cold lettuce and stuff like that. But this morning, all the lettuce plants look sad. They're all. If you've ever planted lettuce plants, and they go in the first when they have that like transplant shock, and they just kind of wilt and fall over, but then they come back. That's what they did. They're fine. Nothing bad happened to them. But what I'll do is I'll take some PVC pipe and put them on each corner of those raised beds, and I'm going to throw moving blankets over them overnight with the frost. And then the we're going to have the good news is every day that it's going to be that cold. Or every night that's going to be that cold during the day, it's going to come above freezing. So I'll go out and remove it once we're above freezing and put it back on once we're below freezing or heading into the night again. Uh, that's about all you can do. Anything that's uh, pots, you anything that's in containers, bring it in the house, drag it in the garage, whatever, you should be fine. And really think about your pipes. Um, you know, I mean, my other thing is one of my aquaponic system, I had all the wicking beds shut down. And I thought we were through this crap. And, you know, if it goes to 28, 29 degrees, since the water's moving, it won't freeze up and nothing breaks. So this weekend, I turned it all back on, and now i got to go shut it all back off this weekend again and shut those wicking beds off because I don't want that stuff freezing up on me, and I'll drain the wicking beds out again. Uh, and, that, I mean, that's all you can do. Now, my, my biggest hack that I've come up with, my buddy David helped me out with, is for all my pipes that are out on my property... What I do is I shut the water off to the whole property, uh, back, and that's right back by the house, and that's all covered up, and I have a heat, heat tape basically on there so that that won't freeze up behind that valve. And then I open up one valve on the property. I run an extension cord out there. I hook my air compressor up, and I have a female-to-female -female hose that we made, and then my air compressor goes to that, and I set the air compressor there with the extension cord so that it won't run out of air on me while I'm doing this. And I turn the air compressor on, and I just turn it up to about 10 pounds of, of air. Just 10 pounds. And I walk around my property, and I open all my hose bibs. And it blows all the water out, and then my pipes don't break. Because if there's nothing in there to freeze, it don't break. Uh, and and that's that's what I'll have to do this weekend. And that's, that's my ritual this weekend. That's what I'm doing. If I had any better ideas, I'd be doing them here. Uh, it is not practical for me to cover my trees. I have too many trees, and most of them are too big now to do that. If you have smaller fruit trees, again, you can get the covers at Home Depot and Lowe's. Uh, they'll provide about 10 degrees of protection, uh, which is enough to get through this. And as long as we get the rain here and the freezing later, you will probably have some of your blossoms stay on the tree, but you're going to lose some. That's another thing. It don't matter when it got wet. It matters that it's wet when it freezes. So when we get all this rain on Saturday and Sunday, as we head into the freezing weather, one of the things you can do that will help, walk around all your fruit trees that have flowers on them especially and give them a good shake because you're not going to get a lot of sun to bake that moisture off of them. And I know what some of y'all are thinking, but I heard that if you spray certain trees with water and they freeze ice around them, it'll actually protect them from the frost. Some plants, yeah, it actually does work. It doesn't work with fruit tree blossoms. I'm telling you, when fruit tree blossoms get water that freezes on the blossom, 
boom, they fall right off and no fruit. So that's the best I can do with that one. Any other suggestions? I'm open, man. If you can tell me what I can do, I, I will try it and let you know if it works. Uh, we got one more today. Hey, Jack, what is the minimum acreage you think I would need in order not to be able to see, hear, or smell my next-door neighbors? I'm looking for the the most amount of privacy I can I can have. So I just I would like to know that question. Thank you very much, Jack. You're the man. God bless you. Well, like most things, it depends. And that number could vary widely. If you were in an area with lots of open fields, you could be on twenty acres and if every neighbor had, you know, five to twenty acres It still can kind of feel kind of neighborhood-like. You still can kind of see everybody and everything. You could be on five acres that's heavily wooded and pretty much locate the house centrally on the property with a bit of a winding driveway into it, and you could have neighbors that are relatively close that you can't really see or hear. An example of this is when I lived in Arkansas. I, I, I mean, I literally had a neighbor across the street. Now, they were a little bit higher up the road from me, but they were right there. I never saw them or heard from them. Uh, we were on a kind of a ridge, and they had pushed uh, a place to build their house, like kind of over and down, like made a plateau that went down below the road grade. And I was also kind of down below the road grade. So we the houses were probably 200 yards apart. And you could not see one from the other. I had another neighbor up the road about 150 yards, and I never saw them. And another neighbor and two neighbors up there side by side, uh, family and the in-laws lived across the street from them. And, and they were maybe 500 yards up the road, and I never saw them except when they came down the road in their car. So that was an example of just the way that the property was set up. And that's probably the best thing to do here because... Here's your issue. Like, if you got 20 acres, I said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to build my house in the center of that 20 acres and make sure that the majority of everything around me stays woods. Yeah, you're probably not going to see anybody, but your construction costs and your utility costs are going to be really high because the electric company and whatnot, if you're bringing power in, are only going to um, pay for a certain amount of distance, and then you're going to have to fund the difference. So you probably don't want to push yourself too far back from whatever road or access there is. Um, that said, it's a lot of times it's worth going another 100 feet. And, and even if something costs you uh, $5 a foot, 100 feet is 500 bucks. You probably consider that money well spent. You double it, and it's 1000 bucks, and it really makes you happier with your home site. Yeah, you, you, you can do that all day long. When you start talking hundreds of yards, you're start talking you know tens of thousands of dollars. So what I would do if I wanted as much privacy as possible is I'm going to look for a specific type of property then. So some of the, some of the things that I would consider that would make this happen – Is it the last house on, on, on whatever access road there is? If it's the last house and it's either undesirable or impossible for somebody to build behind you, then right there, even if you have one neighbor that's not that far away, as long as they're kind of screened, it's kind of like living completely by yourself in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and, and I've owned a property like that as well. It's, it's, You know, it's great. You feel like no one bought you. My property here, I mean, we can see the road from the house, and we've got neighbors across the street. But, I mean, 
it's still very private because we just don't bother each other and we both have large we all have large lots i have a neighbor to my uh, east and i never see him and i have a neighbor that's building a house to my west and i barely see them they're kind of in the back corner of my property and i got a guy behind me and right now when i sit in my backyard i feel like i'm in the middle of nowhere So if you if you look at more of the structure of the property and then you know where you're living and, and how feasible it is to to you know if there is an opening to quickly fill it in with vegetation so that it blocks views and noise and stuff like that um, as much as, as antisocial as you sound and I don't mean that in a bad way I'm kind of the same way uh, you know in the end you have to make you have to make settlements when it comes to real estate. Um, But if I had an unlimited budget, I'd want somewhere around 100 acres. I mean, that's that's what I would really want. And, and I would want to make sure that my my dwelling is somewhere on that property that shields me from whoever is closest. And, and then you kind of would feel like, I mean, a 100-acre property is way bigger than people think it is. When I started looking at property to buy this house, when we were living in Arkansas, we were driving all over the place. And I looked at some properties that were 10 acres. There were 10-acre properties that I felt were enormous. And there were 10-acre properties that I felt were tiny. You might wonder, well, how's that work? Well, what's the shape? A 10-acre square is huge. A properly laid out 10-acre rectangle is huge. A 10-acre rectangle that's much longer than it is wide It don't. We looked at a property exactly like that, and it didn't feel big at all. The three acres I'm on here feels bigger than that property felt, even though it was more than three times the size of this one. You know, it was right on the road, and then it was a narrow, long strip that followed the road the whole way. So one side of you was a cornfield, and the other side of you was the road, and it was like. It basically looked like a place they would build suburbs, and you had the strip that the suburbs would have been, you know, for 20 houses. Which seemed, and if you wanted to grow plants, it would be great. But for privacy, it sucked, you know. So we didn't, we didn't make an offer on that place, obviously. So it's more about the structure and the layout of the property, the vegetation, and the lay of the land. But I mean, the things that always really make it work. If you have state or national forest conservation land. Uh, you know, uh, if you, a lot of times property near lakes, like you won't have lake access directly, but you can, you're, they'll let you go on the conservation land, the buffer for the lake that adjoins your property. No one can ever build there. And, and a lot of times people shy away from that because, well, I want privacy, but if it's public land, then, you know, people can go there. Well, they can, but how often do they? And that all, you know, that depends. If there's no, If there's no connected, I mean, people in the end, most people are effing lazy. And they walk on paths and trails and roads. And if the only trail in there is something you kind of finagle in yourself to get, you know, out into that area, you probably won't see many people. Uh, I had a good friend that lived near Lake Washita in Arkansas. And it's exactly that. It's national. He bordered the national forest. And yeah, that's public land. Anybody can go there. He said, I've never seen anybody there in my life other than myself and my dogs. So, you know, that's another thing to look for. Or is there land there that maybe somebody owns, but it is completely undesirable to, to build on? You know, if you, you kind of back off and roll, and then there's like super steep land. And the person, if they're going to build, they're going to build up on the ridge way the hell out in the distance. 
then you probably won't see much of them either. And they don't probably and, and that's the other thing. If you if you kind of try to move to one of these areas, generally people don't want to know what other people are doing. I mean, that's the biggest thing that I've noticed. That when, once you move out of, of the place where everybody wants to talk to their neighbor while they're taking the trash out uh, and talk about the weather and other meaningless drivel, you know, they might get along well and all when they see each other at the mailbox or something, but they, they, they don't really bother to go try to figure out, well, what are you doing? What are you doing? Uh, and you might find the, the problem then being that you, you don't, really have enough community and enough friends. So be careful how far you push this because it may lead somewhere that actually is, you know, you might think it's a great thing at, at first, but we all get older and we all need help and we all want to help other people. And, you know, it's, it's good to know the people around you. And so to me, the balance is feeling like there's no one around me, but when I need somebody or they need me, we can find each other. That That's the kind of sweet spot for me. But I got to admit, You know, 80, 100 acres, all wooded, two or three acres opened up for doing all my farm stuff. Yeah. Um, if I figure out how to get myself into a place like that, you're probably going to have to blast me out with a stick of dynamite to get me out. I mean, that's that would be about the way it would work for me. Um, with that, let's go ahead and wrap up today. I want to remind you guys that you can help support the show. By becoming a member of the Member Support Brigade, just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members to learn more. And how would you like to support this show and be a member for free for it not to cost you anything? Yeah, you can't really do it, but you can. And the way you can do it is if you use the discounts, your membership pays for itself, so it doesn't cost anything, and you get to support us. Learn more again at the survivalpodcast.com and uh, click on the Members tab. The other way is to do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. That's where you'll find all of my reviews of items uh, on Amazon. And as long as you do your shopping there, you help support us no matter what you eventually buy. I'm bringing back one of our best-selling products from last year, a uh, product that sold. When I put this out, people bought them left and right. I have gotten so many emails telling me what a great little product this is for about $9. It's the Nebo 6350 Larry Worklight. This is a little bitty light, uses three AAA batteries, and you can put it in your pocket like a pen. Like if you have a, a shirt pocket, that's how small it is. It'll carry well in a, a jean pocket or something like that, too. Um, it is not really like a tactical light. That would probably work okay, but it's not really a straight-up focus beam. It's very bright. It's 170 lumens. But it's spread out. If you think of like a light like that's designed for a mechanic to use, that you would attach to the hood of a car so you can see underneath there. The light, while not that big, it's a long vertical light like that, and it's for working in spaces. This is one of the craziest things ever as to how I found a product. A listener found one in a ceiling, like a drop ceiling in an office. So electricians, cable installers, etc., use these things, obviously, for, for good reason. And somebody had left one in the ceiling. Well, he found it. And said, man, this thing is bright. I looked it up online. They're like eight, nine bucks. You got to check this out. So I bought a four pack of them. And I'm like, yeah, this is great. So I ran with it as an item of the day. They have a magnet so they can go on metal and kind of stay there. They have a flat base. So you, if you're working on something, as long as it's a flat surface, you can set it there. Even laying on its side, it gives you a lot of light. I have a video where I take it in a bathroom in the house, turn the light off so it's completely, completely dark and turn it on and show you how bright they really are. Again, I don't see this as like an EDC tactical light, 
but for working in tight spaces where you need to have your hands free and you need a lot of light, uh, for a toolkit, for a toolbox, glove box in a car, uh, and you can get a four pack of them uh, for $31.99. That's $8.94 a piece. I mean, that's just stupid cheap for the quality of these things. When I put out the, uh, the item of the day on Facebook today, one guy said, hey, I I've been using these ever since you got them. I picked up three. I love them. They're starting to make knockoffs of them now. And I've looked at the knockoffs and stick to the original. I mean, how cheap can you get to begin with in, in, you know, without cutting quality? He said Harbor Freight has basically a knockoff of them now. I think when Harbor Freight makes a knockoff of your product, you've done something right. I mean, really. And when they're making a knockoff of a product that's already selling for nine bucks, you really did something right. Check it out. The Nebo 6350 Larry Worklight. Pick one up, pick four up, pick two up, whatever you do. I promise you, I promise you, if you pick this light up, you're not going to be like, Jack, you're a jerk. Uh, these aren't good lights. They suck. You might be, Jack, you're a jerk. Uh, because of you, I picked this light up, and it made my life better, but not, not the other kind of jerk, right? Uh, check it again, Nebo 6350, Larry Worklight, item of the day. And you can always support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Song of the day today is by ELO. Hold On Tight is the name of the song. Those of you that are youngsters and don't know who ELO is, Electric Light Orchestra is the name of the band. They are awesome. They come from the golden days of music, and I really like them, and I have for a very long time. This song is really about holding on to your dreams. Uh, there's actually one, one set of the chorus, and it's done in French, uh, but it's the same as the rest of the chorus. And basically, the, the, the message of this song is when things get the worst of the worst, don't let go of your dreams. Kind of fits in with the concept of the survival podcast, doesn't it? Holding on to your dreams. And I want to kind of talk to you a little bit about that today as we wrap up with the difference between holding on to your dreams and holding on to a bad idea. And convincing yourself that something is your dream even when it isn't. It's important to know when to quit. Because sometimes it's the right time to quit. It's also important sometimes to know when to change lanes or change vehicles. But when you really know this is what you want, and when you really know that achieving it is worth the sacrifice, then yeah, hold on tight to your dreams. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. 